Amen. Well, it's good to be together again this afternoon, family. Uh, let me get this situated, uh, and then we'll dive in. Let me pray for us. God, thank you again for uh, this opportunity to worship you. Thank you for all of the ways that we, yeah, have already been doing that, Lord. Again, through uh, singing the Bible, praying the Bible, um, yeah, Lord, uh, reading the Bible, and, and now uh, through the preaching of the Bible. God, I pray uh, that you would, um, yeah, continue to be magnified and use all of this to glorify yourself and to us as a collective body uh, that we would experience the goodness of it. So would you reveal yourself more and more to us? Would you teach us more and more this afternoon? Uh, would you help us to hide your word in our hearts that we may not sin against you? And God, we pray that your word will do the work in all of our hearts in every way that you see fit. Again, may you increase, may I decrease. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 One scholar puts it this way. He says, perhaps the greatest danger facing the church is an attack on its source of authority, namely the word of God. Spiritual apathy and a general coldness and indifference to the biblical truth and God's standards of righteousness also pose serious risks. Such indifference is usually denied, often with an aura of self-deceptive sincerity, but it attacks the spirituality of the church. Equally to be feared is whatever attacks the unity of What or who is attacking the unity here at CHCC? Or what or who can attack the unity here at CHCC? By God's grace, as we've been mentioning all month, we are celebrating two years this month as a church. And we're going to keep that celebration going by having a meal together next Sunday. We're in an encouraging season as a church, and I praise God for it, that we are all striving for unity. And so we praise the Lord for that. But, and I pray this isn't the case, we may find it that in these times, that when we are unified, seeming to be unified, celebratory, right? Celebrating two years as a church that in these times is when our unity is tested the most and that we must be reminded that we have to be on guard for the church's unity. Paul exhorts the church at Philippi to be unified and provides an example to follow in the God-man, the Lord Jesus. 
So in our time together this afternoon, I want us to consider this exhortation and example as we finish this last sermon on Article 2 in our Statement of Faith, right? If you've been with us over this last month or so, you know, we've started a sermon series in our Statement of Faith called What We Believe Together. And over these last few weeks, we've been camped out on Article 2 of the true God, right? And so in the last few weeks, what we've covered is there being one God, and there's one God, no other God, but the one God from the Bible, and that this one God is also triune, that he is Trinity, one essence, three distinct persons, right? And today, by God's grace, what we want to see in God's word is Jesus being God and also being man. And we're going to see this in the context of this passage by way of pursuing unity and a pathway to unity is humility, just like our God-man, the Lord Jesus. And so we'll see that this afternoon together. So turn with me to Philippians 2, 1 through 11, as that's where we're going to be. Here's what it reads. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, verse 4, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word, amen? amen? Amen. If I were to summarize this passage, it may go something like this. Uh, pursue unity as a church through the pathway of humility by practicing after the humble one. I'll say that again. Pursue unity as a church through the pathway of humility by practicing after the humble one. So this main idea will also serve as our points as I walk through the passage. So point number one, pursue unity as a church. We'll see that in verses one through four. Number two, a pathway to unity is humility. We'll see that in verses three through four. Lastly, number three, practice humility by looking to the humble one. We'll see that in verses five through 11. 
So let's look at the first one together. Point one, pursue unity as a church. Look back with me at verse one. Here's what it says. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Paul here in verse one is making an encouraging assumption. It could be read like this. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since there is participation or fellowship in the spirit, since there is affection and sympathy, do this. So the assumption is, is that this is what's happening at the Church of Philippi. It's such that they are, yeah, that it could be read that this is what they're doing. So since they are doing this, Paul then says here in verse 2, by way of command, be unified. Since these things are true of you, be unified. As you see that in verse 2, right? It says, be unified. Paul says, since these things are true of you as a church or should be true of you as a church, complete my joy of doing the what? The following. Here's what he says. He says, have the same mind. That literally means think the same way. Be unified in your thinking, unified in your beliefs. Second, have the same love. Have love for one another that flows from your love in Christ. Have the same shared love that's for Christ and for one another. Be on one accord. Be unified in harmony with one another heading in the same direction as if we were a military unit, right? Think about the military. There you have, they are locked in on the mission, heading in the same direction as a military unit. And just like the first one, be of one mind. Again, be unified in your way of thinking. So verse two points back to Philippians one, verse 27, where Paul says there, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So the question is, what is unity? Well, in these verses that we've just been looking at, we find our definition of Biblical unity. So it's not uniformity, right? Meaning red is my favorite color, so your favorite color must be red. Now, if your favorite color is red, that's okay. You know, you can, you can have that color. We can share in that same love of a color. But no, it's a oneness in that we have been made one. That we have been unified through the Lord Jesus and it's in the Lord Jesus and by his spirit where our unity is maintained. Paul tells us this uh, in Ephesians 4.3 that we should be eager to maintain unity in the spirit of the bond of peace. So here's what he says, he says, eager to maintain, yeah, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So this is why if your unity or my unity is based on or maintained by something or someone else, it may not be biblical unity. It may be more of an affinity or uniformity. 
And we have to know the difference. So the application for us this afternoon would be to pursue unity at all costs. That we are as a church to pursue unity at all costs. Let nothing rival the unity we have here as a church. And that we are all to be fighting for this unity in the church in all things. But in order to do this, we have to have a roadmap. We have to have a pathway, which leads to, to point number two. So that's one, pursue unity, that we are to pursue it. But here's the pathway to unity, and that's via humility. Look at verses three through four with me. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So here in verse 3, we are told the pathway to unity is humility. You see that there? Paul there says, to use the NLT version, he says, basically, don't be selfish. And don't try to impress others. That's what the NLT says. Selfish meaning, don't be stingy. Right. Don't be so concerned with your own personal gain or enjoyment that you don't think about others. That's the idea. here, Right. Conceited is, well, I think every kid or teen here or out there can tell us what conceited is. Right. Every adult, too. All of us adults. I saw the eyes looking every adult too. Instagram and really all of social media are a place where our conceited selves gets a public stage. That's what social media does. We want to show ourselves off, our accomplishments, our proudest moments. And these aren't necessarily bad things, right, in and of themselves. But what happens is, is that it can fuel the sinful side we all have, which is conceit. It can fuel that. And it's selfish ambition and conceit that are really forms of pride, right? Pride is what caused the beef between God and Satan, and it's pride that was at the root of our first parents, Adam and Eve's sin, and the sin we all inherited from them. Pride says, look at me. Look at me. It also says, look at my stuff. Look at my stuff. Ain't I great? Ain't my stuff great too? This is what pride says. Pride also says, I got this. I don't need anyone's help. Right? And essentially what that is, is really a conceited way of thinking. It's arrogance. Pride will cause disunity in a church. Pride can cause disunity in a church. And God's word here gives us the remedy for pride. Paul tells us we all need to take a continual dose of humility. We all need to take a continual dose of that. Humility on a daily basis. We learn here that humility is counting others more significant than yourselves, ourselves, right? First Peter 5 tells us to clothe ourselves, to put it on like a fresh tea and some Jordan 11s, to, to put this on. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
That's what he says here in verse 5 of 1 Peter 5. It says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We don't want God to oppose us. It wouldn't end well for any of us if he were to oppose us. And at one time he was opposed to us. Right? And it wouldn't have ended well had he not befriended us, made a way for us to, to know him, made a way for that opposition to be handled through the Lord Jesus, right? Instead, biblical humility is a humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand which then also produces a humbling toward one another. You hear that? You catch that? This is what verse 6 even tells us in 1 Peter 5. It says, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Whenever that time is, that he will do it. Right? But we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. It's not being so consumed with self that you neglect others. It says, Pastor Tim Keller says, he says, humility is thinking of yourself less, not thinking less of yourself. Hear that? It's not a, it's, 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 it's a thinking of yourself less, not being so consumed with self, 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 not thinking yourself to be less, right? In fact, that's what we see here in verse 4. Look down with me at verse 4, Philippians 2, 4. What does it say? It says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The pathway to unity, the roadmap to unity, in order to see the realities of verse 2 live out, come to life in our church, or continue to be the pattern of unity in our church, it's through humility. It's through humility. J. Cole, the rapper J. Cole said, pride is the devil. And he's partly right. But it's most importantly a sin before God. And when we are consumed with pride, we are being more like Satan than we are our God. So how might you and I be more humble this week? Maybe you might answer yes when one of your fellow brothers or sisters offer you help as you're going through a challenging time. It's one way. Maybe instead of looking for applause and not receiving it in the way that you desire, you may in humility celebrate someone else in the congregation. Or when a need pops up in the congregation, your first response may not be, what about my needs? I have needs too. What about my needs? And in doing so, this need that has just popped up, letting that pass you by because you're consumed with your needs. And those are important too. But instead, you may say, how might I be able to serve this brother and sister? I have needs too, yes. 
But how might I consider this brother or sister more highly than myself in this moment by also trying to help as well? However the Lord may be landing this on you or me, may we apply these things or apply them appropriately in the way that the Lord sees fit. Amen? So number one, yeah, pursue unity. Number two, the pathway, the roadmap uh, to unity is through humility. And this is the type of example we have in our Lord, isn't it? This type of humility, which leads to our last point, number three. Practice humility by looking to the humble one. We want to achieve humility in and of ourselves. We have to look to the humble one who is the example. Who is the example and who we are exhorted to be like. Look at verses 5 through 8. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of a death, even death on a cross. The humility we need, the humility you need and I need, the humility we are looking for is seen in and modeled by the Lord Jesus. In verse 5, we see that Jesus has a shared attitude. Right? That's what it says, right? That he has a, a shared, it says, have this mind among yourselves. He has the same posture of humility. I love how the NIV reads, it says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So the Lord Jesus has this, this same mindset, this same posture, right? That same mind that we see earlier in the verses of having the same mind, having the same love, being on one accord. This is exemplified in the Lord Jesus. And it's this humility that's portrayed in Christ's divinity and humanity, in him being God and in him being man, right? Look back with me at verse 6. It says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not equality with God a thing to be grasped. We see here, and as we've been seeing over these last few weeks, that Jesus is God. That he is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity who is God, sharing in the same nature, the same essence of God the Father. The text says he was in the form of God, not a form of God, which is a big difference. This affirms where Paul says, what Paul says about Jesus in Colossians 1.15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And the author of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Yeah. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand 
of the majesty on high. So you want to know what God looks like? You want to know what God is like? Look to the incarnate God, the Lord Jesus. Look to him. Look to him. He is God. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, excuse me, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is affirmation of Jesus' deity. Jesus is God. But as we continue reading this passage, what's amazing about our Lord is that he wasn't tripping over being God. He wasn't tripping over that. He is God. He wasn't tripping. What does the text say? Look at it. It says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I love how the NIV puts it. It says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Yes. That's who our Lord is. We see Jesus' humility on display in his divine nature, in his divinity. Jesus is equal with God because he is God, but he doesn't use his godness to his own advantage when he could have. He could have. He could have stayed in heaven. And he would have been justified in doing so. It's like the kid or the president of the United States, right? They could use their father's power to their benefit all the time. But they probably don't. With Jesus being God, he could have and doesn't. Instead, he descends from his heavenly home, which was very advantageous for us. So God became man. Look back at verse 7. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So we see here in this great hymn, this is considered a, a great hymn, a poem that, that Paul breaks out into in worship to our God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see here that he is equal with God. But we also see here that he is man, that he is very God, very man, 100% God, 100% man. It's this, this theological term that's called the hypostatic union, that the Lord Jesus has these two natures that don't oppose one another, right? But they are in perfect harmony with one another, unified together. And so Jesus is God. Jesus is man. Jesus continues to show his example of humility here. The text says he made himself nothing. Or another translation puts it, he emptied himself. What this doesn't mean is that Jesus ceased from being God. This doesn't mean that when Jesus left heaven, when he was sent from heaven, that when he descended, that he, in his dissension, ceased from being God. It's not what that means. It's kind of like Prince Harry. You might you know Prince Harry relinquishing his royal title. Remember that? He's still a prince by lineage, by nature. He's still a prince, no matter if he relinquished his title. He's still a prince. Similarly, Jesus didn't cease from being God by becoming man. Instead, 
If anything, in his giving up, it was that he put on something that he was not. That's what happened. He took on a form that he was not. He became a servant by being born in the likeness of men. He put on this weak flesh that we all have. This frail flesh. This sinful flesh. Although Jesus was without sin. The promised seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, who was the promised Messiah fulfilled in the virgin birth of Mary. This is who our Lord is. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The Son of God, humbled by becoming a human being, being born as a baby, having to depend on earthly parents to feed him, to change him, to bathe him, and care for him. What humility on display. This baby would be, was, is the hope of all mankind. He is the hope for all mankind. And he would grow up in the wisdom and stature of the Lord, Luke 2, and be put to death according to the will of the Father. Look at verse 8. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, as if he hadn't already showed humility enough, took it a step further by dying on the cross. The worst ways to die. The most humiliating and humbling ways to die. Jesus experienced excruciating pain inflicted upon him. For us, Jesus was spit on. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was stripped of his clothes. A crown of thorns put on his head. Hung up on a cross with nails in his hands. Nails in his feet. Why? To save sinners like you and me. To give his life as a ransom for many. So that that many would come to know him by faith. This is what we see here in the good news of Jesus. In the gospel. And that Jesus came. Lived the perfect sinless life in our place. For our sin. Dies the death that we all deserve was buried, but raised on the third day, offering salvation to all who would put their trust in him by faith. This humility is on display in the gospel. This humility, this is where humility and God's grace and his mercy meets at the cross, where we see in our Lord, humbling himself to the point of death, For us. 
This is the gospel we hold out every week to all who doesn't know him. This is the gospel that the team was out earlier on the block holding out to all who doesn't know him. This is the gospel we hold out every week here to anyone who may not know him. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ by faith. For all of us who do know him, this gospel also reminds us as Christians of how he saved us, yes, but also echoes how Jesus came to serve us and give us a model of serving. I know we probably heard that. We heard come to serve us. That, that even sounds weird in saying it, right? This is God. This is the Lord coming to serve us. But this is exactly what Jesus did. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in a sense, Jesus' death was a model of humility and also a motivation for us as we pursue humility. It's a model and a motivation for us as we pursue humility. We see this in his death, and his death was hugely important. If hugely is a word, it was important. But his life was equally important. You need both. Can't have one without the other. Particularly by obeying God perfectly in our place and being the substitute that we all needed by paying our sin debt. So we see that in his life and death. But when it comes to serving, we see this especially, many places, but especially in John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Remember that? I'm going to read it, starting at verse 12. It says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. John 13, 12 through 17, showing us a picture of Jesus' humility, his service. So some of you might be thinking right now, after reading that passage, anything like me, you might be like, man, I ain't washing nobody's feet. I'm not washing nobody's feet, nobody's crusty feet. My feet are crusty, everybody, I'm not washing them. <laughs> I get it, but don't miss the point. The point was not the feet being washed, it was really the act of service. It was in that Jesus was serving the disciples by washing their feet. And by serving the disciples, the disciples by washing their feet, giving us an example for us to serve one another. Could mean washing someone's feet. Could be other ways, right? So in what ways, church family, can we serve one another this week? Think about that. Pray about that. 
needs that you might already know about, go at them head first. Ask how you might be able to serve one another and care for one another and love one another in those ways. Lastly, in Jesus' humiliation and humbling, he is highly exalted. So he's humiliated, he's humbled, yet at the same time highly exalted. Look at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So son, again, he's humbled. He is humble, yet highly exalted. Highly exalted in the sense that his name is above every other name. And it's at his name that all people can be saved. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And it's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow everywhere. It may be similar to the way John reports it in his gospel. You may remember when the soldiers and the officers came searching for Jesus at his betrayal. John says there in John 18, 4 through 6, he says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. There will be a day when everyone will fall back and fall to the ground. They will draw back and fall to the ground. And for non-Christians, we are encouraging that you bow now. You will bow later. There will be a day where you will bow. We all will. But bow now in his mercy. Because sadly, if you bow later, that will be in experiencing his wrath. So we want to bow now while God is merciful towards us and gracious towards us. In verse 11, we are told, Every tongue will confess to his lordship. So the same tongues used to cuss will confess he is Lord. Except in this time, again, if you were not a Christian, you will confess while experiencing his wrath and not the mercy and the grace and love that he is pouring out now. So we implore anyone everywhere who doesn't know the Lord, to turn to him by faith today. May today be the day of salvation for you, for them. So what we've been learning in conclusion, 
as the team comes back up, in conclusion, is that unity in a church is pursued through this pathway, through this roadway of humility. But not humility in and of ourselves, right? Humility that is by looking to the humble one, the humble servant and savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. So church family, this is the type of unity we must fight for. This is the type of unity that we're already fighting for, but, but that we must continue to fight for. So may we do that even the more. And as we do that, may we continue to look to the God-man in the Lord Jesus Christ as our example and as one who we've been exhorted by to pursue unity. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for calling us to yourself, making us one with you and with one another. Thank you for unifying us through the gospel, by the spirit, making us one family. And making us this one family, unifying us in this way to be a witness to the world. Where when we leave out of these doors, where we might experience a lot of disunity in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, or wherever we might be, the church is to be a picture of the unity that's modeled in and seen in the Lord Jesus, seen really in the Godhead, in the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three distinct persons in unity with yourself. Perfect harmony, perfect unity. And you call us to be the same in the church. So Lord, help us to continue to do that here at CHCC in the days ahead, the weeks ahead, months and years ahead as you may tarry. Please grant deep unity and fellowship and love to bear fruit within our lives and in the lives of those who we come into contact with. We pray, do this and much more in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.